During this series, we've been talking about how so many factors can influence the expression of our genes. And we've referred to all those factors collectively as the exposome. All the various things in our lives that literally change the way our genes work. They don't change the gene itself. We're born with the gene and it stays that way, but it's not the gene that determines our risk. It's, it's the expression of that gene. It's whether that gene has been activated, has been turned on or turned off, like that dimmer switch, turned up or turned down. So there's many factors that influence our genes. But there are some factors that have a much greater impact than we think they do. Previously, we talked about how our emotions can have such a powerful influence on genes. And today, we're going to expand on that. We're going to actually expand on this concept. We know that, that the whole field of nutrigenomics, which is how food how what we eat influences our, our genetic risk is very powerful. The power of food to alter genetic expression. And we've talked about how many factors, including inflammation, can be dramatically influenced by certain dietary patterns. But, but today I want to talk about something that influences inflammation that is far more powerful than what we choose to put into our mouth. Far more powerful. And, and it, uh, addressing this and healing this aspect of our exposome has a much greater potential to lead to healing than does even optimizing our diet. Remember, it's it's those colors, those pigments in food that when consumed literally change the way our genes work, can calm down inflammation, can dramatically lower cancer risk, heart disease risk, diabetes risk, on and on. But there's something much, much more powerful than that. A big part of lifestyle medicine is being willing to evaluate things that might make us a little uncomfortable. You know, some people don't like to get their blood drawn, right? <laughs> um, makes them squeamish, or they're just afraid of needles, whatever it might be. Or, more typically, we don't want to have that blood test because... Well, we don't want to know, right? Right? We don't want to know what might be wrong with us. And, and, well, we might actually find out something that would mean we need to change something about our lives or our lifestyle. We might need to change something about something we really like to do or eat, whatever it might be. So we have various reasons why we don't do testing. But I'd like to suggest to you that it's 
testing that makes us aware. It's, it's testing at a deeper level. Every time you go to your doctor for that yearly physical, ask him or her, can we test at a deeper level? I'm not satisfied with the same old tests that I've been getting year after year. They're good tests. But they can only tell you so much. If you've always sailed through and gotten an A plus on your laboratory testing, then that means we're not doing the right tests. At least not over and over again. Let's do something new. Let's, let's find out something we don't already know. And that's also true with this risk factor. As we look at our exposome. I was just working with a gentleman today. He had come in to see me for a completely different issue. And we did the advanced cardiac risk factor panel and discovered that he had a very high plaque test. That lipoprotein phospholipase A2 test, which actually measures the the enzymes released by cells that are plaque-ridden inside the artery wall. It actually shows us in a blood test that there's active inflammation and plaque building up inside the artery wall. All his cholesterol values were perfect. In fact, the majority of his risk factors were perfect. In the last four months, he had even reversed prediabetes, had worked hard at it, and he had, he had accomplished that goal. But there was a new risk factor that hadn't been measured yet. Probably was much better today than it had been last year. But without realizing it, this relatively young man, he's younger than I am, (laughs) relatively young man actually had active heart disease. We would have never known it. We would have never guessed it by doing just the traditional risk factors. Serendipitously, as, as I started putting two and two together and trying to see how this related to an actual neurologic condition that he had originally come to me for, we discovered that circulation problems are a major factor in the progression of this neurologic disease. So I shared with them, says, this is great news. We have just discovered another way to potentially prevent the progression and possibly even help reverse this condition that is so devastating for so many people. Looking at new risk factors can give us a whole new approach to optimizing our health and bringing true joy and health to our bodies, to our minds, and to our soul. So I'm going to ask you this question today. Is this part of your exposome? Put a little smiley face next to it. So take a look at this. Is this part of your experience from time to time? Somebody cuts you off in traffic. What's your natural response to that? 
whoa, they must be in a more of a hurry than me. I'm just going to back up a little bit, you know, slow down a little bit. Or are we like, are we fuming and upset that somebody would have the gall, the audacity to cut us off? Which aspect of that is, our, our, is part of our exposome? When I first saw this picture, it, it took me back almost 30 years. When I first started practicing, I had the opportunity to work with um, the Loma Linda Faculty Medical Group in Sun City, but three days a week I was down in San Diego. And I was commuting from Loma Linda, California, all the way down to San Diego. So back then, it was about an 85-mile drive. And coming back from San Diego, about 5.30 in the afternoon, it's still a nightmare. I can see the cars backed up. We're just driving into this place today. I can see the cars already backed up on the 15 freeway. But even, even nearly 30 years ago, when... The 15 was still involved in construction. We'd have some long delays. We'd have cars backed up for miles. And every once in a while, a car would pull out a line and try to drive several miles ahead and then cut in. Well, this went on for a while. And then one afternoon in frustration, I said, they're not cutting in front of me. I can no longer allow, enable this, this bad behavior to continue. And I remember as, uh, as this one car was trying to cut in right in front of me, and I just moved my car up so that she couldn't get in there. And I remember kind of glancing through this lady who was driving, and she was looking at me like, what are you doing? And you know what I did? I went like, what are you doing? And just as I did that, I recognized her. (laughs) I recognized that this was one of my wonderful and lovely classmates (laughs) that I had taken biochemistry with, who is now a dental surgeon Somewhere in Southern California. I hadn't seen her in five years, and I haven't seen her since. (laughs) The last communication that I had with this lovely young lady who had been such a help to me in biochemistry class was given her attitude. The worst part about this story is that I had been fuming for so long about this delay that I didn't quickly catch myself and apologize and show her with some type of body language, even though she was only 15 feet away, she couldn't hear, we couldn't hear each other. I could have showed her that I was sorry. But I was still so frustrated, I just turned and looked forward and didn't look back at her. 
You know that that haunts me to this very day. Forgotten her name. Um, I'd love to go and, and ask her to forgive me for being such a jerk, you know, but that's pretty much what she thinks I am for the last 30 years. Oh, that guy, I thought he was a really nice guy, but he's just a jerk. Yeah, and we laugh about experiences like that because I'm sure many of us have been through something similar to that, right? Um, but there's other experiences in our lives that are far more critical that daily have the potential to bring bitterness and resentment into our lives. How does that affect our epigenome? How does that impact our health? Is that just, just an attitude? Attitudes can't, can't really affect your health, can they? Well, that is, in fact, the topic of today's discussion because attitudes and healing, it's not just health. I actually changed the title because I wanted to make sure that we understood that it's, it's an issue of healing. In other words, if you're seeking healing, and once, once each of us reach a certain age, we're all looking for healing because we're all aware we're more self-aware of things that do need healing in our lives, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual. And so I'd like to suggest to you that attitudes have a huge impact on healing and that if we don't address our attitudes, that we're not going to achieve anywhere near our healing potential now or in the future. So... As we look at our health and as we're following our wellness program, as we're doing our daily exercise, as we are seeking to eat plant-based foods rich in, in pigments that, that alter genetic expression, as we spend time outside in the sunlight, as we optimize our vitamin D, as we, as we seek to optimize circulation by looking at at more detailed labs of what we can do to optimize our health, is it possible that we're missing the most important risk factor? Am I still at risk? I remember um, Nancy. This isn't actually a picture of Nancy. Nancy was actually in her early 60s when she first came to me some years ago. And she had decided that she was getting very close to retirement age. She had been a school teacher all her adult life, and she wanted to travel. She wanted to do fun things. She, she was looking forward to optimal health in her retirement years. And so she joined a, a comprehensive lifestyle medicine program that she felt was going to help give her the direction that she needed to optimize her health. Well, within two weeks of doing intensive lifestyle medicine, she had reversed her high blood pressure problem, hypertension gone. Her prediabetes was reversed within a month. Uh, she was just ecstatic of how much better she was feeling, that so many things were improving. See, our program wasn't just a program 
about getting your cholesterol under control, getting your blood sugars under control, getting your blood pressure under control, optimizing your weight, exercising daily, and optimizing diet. Our program was looking at every factor that has an influence on our health. Every aspect of the exposome. About three months into our program, out of the six-month program, I, I took the time to have everybody in Nancy's class take a survey that was found in this book called Anger Kills by Dr. Redford Williams and his wife, Dr. Virginia Williams, a, a well-known psychiatrist, Dr. Redford Williams is the director of the Behavioral Medicine Center at uh, University of North Carolina. And they had written an amazing book. This book is over 25 years old. This is a, a crinkled copy, my own personal copy. And, but there's a 45-page, or excuse me, 45-question survey in this book that changed my life when I took it. And over 20 years of using it with my patients, I've seen dramatic responses to becoming more self-aware about our attitudes. It's uh, questions like, um, you're working out in your yard and a teenager drives by blaring loud rap music. What's your response? You've got two options on the survey. One option is um, you, you begin to realize why young kids don't hear very well. <laughs> Listen to all that loud music. Or you just kind of feel upset that somebody would disrupt the, the, the peace of the neighborhood by driving by with that offensive music. Now, if you're like me, you're always trying to say, well, I would have, like, answer C. But see, you don't have that option. you got to choose A or B in all 45 questions. And in the end, after about 20 minutes of going through all these questions, including an, another example as uh, your you're rushing to the supermarket, the grocery store, and, and you're late, and you just need to get one item, and you know if you just run in and, and, and have your spouse stay, you know, keep the car idling on the side of the road, you run in, and you grab that item, and then you go to the express checkout, because you know that it's against the rules to have more than 11 items at the express checkout. And as you're running with that one item to the express checkout, you see several people pulling in front of you and you start counting how many items they have in their basket. Interesting questions, but very revealing as to how they relate to our health. The, um, the, this questionnaire actually 
is a hostility questionnaire. When I first took this questionnaire, I thought, I'm not hostile. You know, my, my best friends can be the, 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 the biggest enemies at the school. And when I was in high school, my two best friends hated each other. And I was like, come on, guys, let's get along. You know, I was, I was I always viewed as the peacemaker, so I thought I was like the least hostile person around. But you see, hostility is not just acts of aggression, where you're actually physically aggressive with somebody, shove somebody, or have a, a physical act of aggression. Hostility also includes the emotion of hostility, which is anger. I have many people tell me, says, I can be horribly angry inside, but smiling the entire time. But it doesn't stop there. Hostility also involves what we're thinking, our attitude. And that, that thought of a mistrusting attitude is referred to as cynicism, which is a form of hostility. Now, it's pretty easy to rationalize being cynical in today's world. Am I right? You look at the political climate, you look at the economical climate, you, you just look at how things are run around the world. It's pretty easy to become cynical. The challenge that we have, though, is to make sure that that doesn't become part of our daily exposome. Because our attitudes shape us at the genetic level. And we have to learn to become masters of our genes. First and foremost, at the attitude level. Um, so, um, this we I, we had discussed this questionnaire with Nancy and her whole group, and I just watched them answering the questions. I've become good friends with all of them. It's been three months into the program. We've walked together. We've eaten together, uh, literally many dozens of times already. We have talked about the most intimate goals and, and concerns together one-on-one -on -one and in group. And so I know them very well. They know me very well. And as I'm watching them filling out, I can start seeing certain people, jaws drop. Breathing starts getting more rapid. And I start seeing them becoming self-aware. They are now realizing that there is more going on that impacts their health than just what they eat or their exercise program or what supplements they take. A lot more than that happening. And I, I remember... Um, challenging that group after that, after we explained, and everybody self-scored it. They kept all the results themselves, um, and they started 
you know, asking questions about this. Well, what do we do about this? What do we do about hostility in our lives? What do we do about cynicism and anger and aggression? And so I gave them a certain challenge to be thinking about what they specifically can do in the next 24 hours to address this concern. And I remember Nancy came to me afterwards. She had been crying a little bit. She realized that she had failed to do the most important thing for her wellness program. And we'll tell you the rest of the story at the end. But his conflict, an ongoing risk factor in your epigenome. In fact, let me say this about Nancy's situation. She said, she said, Dr. Youngberg, 20 years ago, my very best friend and I bought homes right next to each other. We did everything together. We had decided that we were going to raise our children together. And then one evening, while we had been together just playing some games and talking, my very best friend said something without thinking about my teenage boy that so offended me that I immediately looked at my very best friend and says, says you get out of my house. I don't want, ever want to see you again. And my best friend looked at me incredulously and said, says, no, no, I'm sorry, I wasn't thinking. Uh, and, and I said to her, get out of my house. I haven't talked to her in 20 years. We still live next door to each other. Every time that I go outside for any reason, if I happen to see my past very best friend, I turn away. I don't want to see her. I don't want to deal with her. She does the same. Once in a while, we happen to drive in at the same time, get out of our cars, don't even look at each other, walk into our homes. Our blinds that face uh, each other are closed. We don't want to have any reminders. And she looks at me and she says, I've just realized I've made a horrible, horrible mistake. What do I do now? So I remember, I remember talking to her and praying with her, and I said, Nancy, I want you to think about what you can do in the next 24 hours to address that conflict. See, this conflict isn't just a conflict that occurred 20 years ago. This is a daily conflict that she has been going through for the last 20 years. It has to be resolved. If it's not resolved, that conflict will gradually 
destroy her. It becomes the number one risk factor in her health. Far more important than whether she's controlled her diabetes, far more important than whether she's controlled her high blood pressure, far more important than whether she's gotten her cholesterol under control, her weight, whatever it might be. She was just so stressed. Are we going through some conflict like that or maybe different than that? And how is that affecting my genetic expression? How is that changing my current health and my future health status? This is, this is part of this whole new scientific study that we call psychoneuroendocrine genomics or psychoneuroendocrine immunology that's changing the way genes work. How we think influences our nervous system. Our nervous system in turn there influences our hormonal system. Those hormones turn the immune system one way or another, and ultimately all of that influences our genes. There was um, an amazing study done at the University of North Carolina. And what, what the researchers did is they took medical students who were in their final year of training, and they had them do this comprehensive personality inventory called the, the uh, Multiphasic Minnesota Personality Inventory. Now, part of that inventory is these 45 questions that Dr. Redford Williams put into his book called Anchor Kills. It's still available. You can get it on Amazon. I would recommend it, especially if you discover that uh, or sense that you're one of those 20% of individuals that are called hot reactors. See, those of us who are hot reactors... It's not easy to just shrug things off. It's not water off a duck's back. It gets to us. We get offended more easily. We get upset more easily. We hold in resentment and bitterness longer. But like all other risk factors, there's solutions for these. See, we're all different. We all have little bits and pieces of risk factors that we just need to figure out what they are. doesn't mean we're, we're not as good as somebody else. It just means we're different, and we need to discover what those risk factors are and then deal with them. Be honest with ourselves and be accountable to a process of change that ultimately brings happiness and joy back into our lives and health, vibrant health. Well, these, these uh, young uh, physicians, at the age of 25 took this test. What was interesting is that, take a look at this slide here, is that the half of the class that was most hostile, in other words, they scored in the upper half of hostility for their class at the age of 25 were five times more likely to develop heart disease by age 50. Did you catch that? 
We're not talking 20%, 30%, 40%, 70%, 90%. We're talking 500% greater risk of developing heart disease by age 50. And what was interesting is that they were seven times more likely to have died by age 50 from all causes combined. Risk factors don't show up like this very often. This is a huge risk factor. This is far more important than somebody who has out-of-control diabetes the whole time. This is a huge risk factor. Researchers uh, recently from the Mayo Clinic were looking at the disparity between young men who had had heart attacks versus older gentlemen. You know how they define younger men? Under age 50. So I guess that puts me into the older men category now. So that's not so bad. <laughs> but, um, and what they found was is that young men who had, you know, men under, under 50 who had developed heart disease were actually three times more likely to have hostility than men over 50 who also had heart attacks or, or, or heart disease. In other words, those of us who have that tendency, that predisposition to be hostile, either in aggressiveness or in emotional anger, might not, we might not look aggressive at all, but it's there. We, 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 we have that sense of anger and frustration inside. Or more subtly, that attitude, that cynicism, that mistrusting approach to life. Having any of those levels of hostility in our lives dramatically increases our risk of heart disease. Now, so you don't think I'm picking on doctors. The University of North Carolina also looked at law students, and a very similar thing was discovered. They found that that Lawyers who, who at the age of 25 had taken this test and scored in the upper half of hostility, they were, 20% of them were dead by age 50. 20% dead by age 50. Compared to their classmates who had had a much less cynical approach to life more trusting, only 4% of them were dead by age 50. Am I still at risk? There is an interesting phrase, um, a biblical phrase that says, as a man thinketh, so is he. But see, that's not just a spiritual principle. It is a very powerful spiritual principle. But it's also a psychological principle and it's also a physiologic principle. There is a neural protein called a neuropeptide in the human brain that when cleaved on the left-hand side of that 
neuropeptide, it actually releases a new chemical that gives us a sense of joy and pleasure. It's where the encephalins come from or the endorphins, the, the, the second wind or the runner's high, the endorphin, the just that amazing feeling of accomplishment, just feeling good. That is a that is an actual chemical in the brain that can be released from this neuropeptide. But that very same neuropeptide, if cleaved on the opposite side of that molecule, will lead to stress hormones being released that can make people anxious, stressed, and depressed, and sad. So what makes a difference? How can this very same neuropeptide turn into joy and pleasure or sadness and despondency, stress? I'd like to suggest to you that it's spirit. And by that I mean attitude. What spirit do we bring to the table, so to speak? What spirit do we bring to conversations? What spirit do we bring to situations where somebody has offended us, when somebody has belittled us, when somebody has said something hurtful to us? What spirit do we bring? Because, you see, spirit is a choice. It's a choice. We have the opportunity to dictate how the body responds to various stimuli. Many of us react. But what we want to learn to do is to respond, allowing the frontal lobe to be in control, being able to reason from cause to effect and recognize that if I choose to respond with a spirit a vengeance, a spirit of bitterness. What's the consequence of that? How's that going to not only affect the people around me, but how's that going to affect me, both now and long term? It's a real risk factor. And so that's why I refer to this as gene recognition. Recognition. The genes recognize our spirit, our attitude. And it changes. It changes what's happening, how we think, how we, how we recognize or recognate changes the expression of the genes in our body for good or for bad. So, uh, I want to backtrack a little bit here. So, is, is last time we talked about this question of there being a connection between what we eat and our emotions. And, and let me just remind you of that amazing study published in the British Journal of Psychiatry in 2002, where they took young violent offenders who were in prison and simply put them on omega-3 capsules. Essential oils, DHA, EPA, and minerals. That's it. And after nine months' time, 
They decoded this double-blinded, randomized program study and found that these young violent offenders were now, if they were taking these supplements, were 35% less violent and less hostile. In other words, we need to be constantly integrating things. We, we can talk about spirit, we can talk about attitude, but we also need to recognize that those of us who struggle with hostility oftentimes rationalize that that's just the way I am. That's the way I'm wired and you just need to accept it. Yeah, but that doesn't allow for any effective or beneficial change to occur. Why should we accept something that is hurtful? Why should we accept something that is damaging to us? Why not seek to change that? And there's ways to do that. One of the first things that we can do if we discover that we have cynicism, anger, aggression in our lives is to change our diet. Change our diet, it changes the expression of hostility. But it's still a choice. You can be on the very best diet in the world, and if you continue to make poor choices about how you respond, how you use your spirit in different situations, it's still going to negatively affect your health. So there's, there's over 45 well-done studies that show that hostility and physical health are, are strongly influenced by each other. Uh, hostility is a risk factor for heart disease, premature death, all kinds of problems. See, when we're under any kind of stress, there is much greater risk for increasing the risk of cancer. I can't tell you how many Individuals that I see who struggle with this, they, they, they find, and this isn't always the case, people can get cancer and they've never been you know, visibly stressed in their lives, potentially. But all other things being equal, if we go through a period of prolonged stress, it dramatically increases the risk of all disease, whatever we might be at risk of. What I'd like to suggest to you today is that One of the greatest risk factors is having a sense of bitterness or resentment towards something or somebody that happened in our past. And a corollary to that would be is if we can resolve that bitterness, if we can resolve that conflict in our lives, it will release that burden of chemical stress on the body and dramatically increase your potential to optimize your health. You see, we oftentimes think of anger as the acute symptoms. You know, the, the, the blood coagulates. That's why, that's why uh, we're much more likely to get a heart attack when we're upset because the blood will tend to coagulate, the platelets stick, the blood pressure goes up, the arteries constrict, and when the arteries constrict, uh, if you have plaque building up inside those arteries, it's just like popping a pimple. That plaque ruptures and forms a clot, and 
Now you have a heart attack or a stroke. All kinds of acute risk factors from anger. But what about that seething feeling of frustration and resentment that's just always there in the background? One of my professors at Loma Linda University called it the zone of rumination. You know, you know what ruminants are. Ruminating animals, like a cow, eat some grass, chew it for a while, swallow it, and they'll just sit there and look at you for a while, and then pretty soon they go, mm-hmm. chew it some more. <laughs> swallow it and bring it up, chew it some more. Kind of gross. Uh, but we do it all the time with our emotions. We ruminate. You know what happens when, we're in a, when we allow this, this zone of rumination in our subconscious to grow? How does it grow, by the way? How does this zone grow? It grows from unresolved conflicts. Anything that's not resolved in our lives builds on this zone. And what this zone does is that it will frequently pop something into the conscious mind. And it's usually at those times when we're driving, we have a little bit of quiet time, all of a sudden that zone of rumination goes, hey, maybe they'll do something about this. This whole area of the brain that is, being, that is preventing creativity and and all kinds of things in our life, preventing joy because they're not dealt with. It's that few minutes before we fall asleep, we'll have this little flicker of that thought and we try to suppress it because we don't want to deal with it. It might be when we first wake up, we think about it and off we go into our day. We try to push it away. And we do so many things in our lives to prevent this zone from popping up. So this zone of rumination in our lives that can impact us in so many ways. I, um, I'm thinking of an interesting experience. Uh, we've been talking about how stress can affect blood sugars as it affects so many things. I had a, had a lady in my 12-week diabetes reversal seminar series. She was actually type 1 diabetic. Her goal wasn't to reverse her type 1 diabetes. She just wanted to get a handle of it. She said her blood sugars were frequently in the 400 and 450 range, uh, a very brittle type 1 diabetic and our goal was to get, that, get her blood sugars two hours after a meal under 140 and one, or before meals around 110 or better. She was way off that mark, at very high risk of having kidney failure, blindness, retinal detachment, possible amputations later on in life. She was doing everything possible to control this. So as we went through the 12-week series 
her blood sugars improved. She was dealing with the diet and the exercise, walking after meals, you know, take, taking advantage of the circadian rhythm principles, getting outside in the early morning light. She was do, getting on the right supplements, doing every, get, taking the right amount of insulin before meals. She was trying to do everything right. And she got to the point where her blood sugars were right there at target all the time, most of the time, 90% of the time. I remember that she, she attended one of the last sessions we talked about the impact of stress on blood sugars. About three weeks later, I'm walking through the clinic hallway, and she, she, she grabs me and she says, I know you're busy, but you've got to listen to this story. I go, okay. And she said, um, just this past week, I had just checked my blood sugar. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. My blood sugar was like 107. It had been, been about three and a half hours since I ate lunch. Perfect. Blood sugar's great. My daughter then walked in the door, who uh, was in eighth grade, and uh, I could tell immediately that something had gone wrong at school. She was looking down. She wasn't giving me eye contact. She... She was upset. And I said, honey, what's wrong? She says, oh, mom, I, something happened at school today. I, I just don't want, I don't want to talk about it right now. And, she, and, and the mom said, no, honey, please tell me. Tell me what's wrong. She says, no, mom, I got a softball game. Can you just take me to the softball game, please? So they're driving to the softball park. And mom looks at her daughter and says, honey, you know, tell me what's wrong daughter just, you could tell that she was all stressed, and she said, no, I, I, can I just wait until after the softball game? So mom says, okay, honey. So during, after the first couple of innings, all of a sudden, she remembered a conversation she'd had with another parent, another mother from the middle school. And her friend had said to her, you know, uh, we're, some of us uh, moms are a little concerned because one of the young male teachers at school is being a little too friendly with, with our girls. She chalked it up, you know, but all of a sudden, they had a little bit more meaning. Could it be that something happened between this young male uh, teacher and her daughter? So she, she, she's, you know, thinking, oh, okay, it can't be that. So she starts talking to her daughter's classmates who are watching the softball game. Said, did something happen at school today? Oh, no, nothing happened. Did uh, my daughter get in trouble at school? Oh, oh no, 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 no. We were with her the whole day. No, nothing, nothing happened. And she starts getting more and more concerned about what might have happened. Now, of course, nobody would know if something happened behind closed doors. An hour and a half goes by. Her daughter's coming off the field. This mom, you can imagine, is beside herself. She says, honey, you've got to tell me. You know, if something had happened to her at school, she would want to deal with it with the other parents right now. She says, honey, you need to tell me what happened. And the daughter looked at her and she says, I knew, I knew you were going to get upset. She says, no, no, I, I just need to know what happened. She 
she starts, daughter starts breaking down, and the mom's like, you got to tell me right now. She says, I got put on gum club. And mom, like, gum club? Well, what's gum club? So I got cut chewing gum. And they made me go around the desk and take gum out of underneath the desk, and it was so embarrassing, and I'm so upset. And the mother just kind of lost it. <laughs> she said, are you kidding me? <laughs> and she said, I knew you'd be upset. Because I'm not upset that you got put on gum club. I'm upset that you let me think something really bad had happened. Then she realizes that she's been under stress for an hour and a half. She drives home, hugs her daughter, says, it's okay. It's fine. It's okay that you got cut chewing gum. Just don't do it again. Goes home, checks her blood sugar. It's 457. Had had no food since lunch. Her blood sugars had increased from 107 to 457 simply because of what was going on in her mind. You got to understand that what goes on in her mind, whether it's a, a, a thought, a concern, or an attitude, has a huge impact on our body physiology and ultimately on our genetic expression. And so uh, one of the principles here that she, that she later discussed with me is making sure that she doesn't let her emotions get the best of her and always respond with a gentle answer. And one of our jobs as parents, even as friends and colleagues, is to model a behavior of gentleness, even when somebody's being inappropriate with us, because it diffuses anger amazingly well. And it allows for healing and bonding to take place at a much higher level. So you see, resentment, or to harbor resentments against someone is to allow that person you may not even like to live rent-free inside your mind. There's another principle here, though, and that's the principle of investment. This is an interesting principle that I picked up from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, was a very insightful author, and he said that when there's people in your life that you do not like, you just, just don't like being around them. We all have those people. You know, we can instantly think of who they are. Oh, no. What do I do now? There comes so-and-so. If we invest ourselves in them emotionally, you know what happens? We start to like them. Why? Because we've invested in them. It's a natural, physiologic, emotional, psychological principle that when we say a kind word or when we smile at a person who has offended us in some way or that we don't like for whatever reason, all of a sudden we start liking them. We start appreciating them. We start seeing them possibly how God sees them instead of how we see them. And it changes everything. Remember the principle of investment. We talked about adrenal fatigue uh, last session because adrenal fatigue oftentimes is driven, well, by many factors in our exposome, but when there is unresolved stress in our lives, it really drives adrenal fatigue. And so it's critical that we examine our lives to see 
Is there some unresolved emotional issue in our lives that could help us rebuild vitality? By the way, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting way to test for adrenal fatigue. I mentioned it briefly last session, and that is you can actually test your blood sugars after 300 or 400 calories of carbohydrates and just check it every hour for four hours. And if your blood sugars start to drop significantly below 70 at any time, that's a sign of adrenal fatigue, of inadequate adrenal reserve capacity. Which means that our adrenals that are supposed to release enough of that healthy stress hormone to tell the liver to release a little bit of sugar, if that's not happening, the sugars drop, and the sugar should never drop too low. Because when they do, it places our immune system at risk, it increases our risk for cancer, it increases our risk for all kinds of problems, because our vitality is missing. So there are tests available that you can do with your doctor to look at a comprehensive, a four-hour glucose tolerance test where we're also checking blood sugar, uh, not just blood sugars, but insulin levels and cortisol levels, the adrenal stress hormone. Is it too high? Is it too low? A very valuable test to consider. It was Dr. Dean Ornish who in his book, Love and Survival, in my opinion, one of the best books ever written, of demonstrating the power of emotions and attitudes on our, over our health. He basically said that if we have problems with feelings of isolation or feelings of rejection, that that in of itself leads to at least a two to three-fold increased risk of premature death from all causes. In other words, one of the greatest risk factors confronting us today is a feeling of isolation where maybe we've isolated ourselves from other people. We haven't, we haven't sought to reach out and build connections with others in our neighborhoods, at a church, at a, any kind of group. We need to feel like we belong because otherwise we're going to feel rejected. And that's the number one risk factor. In fact, Dr. Ornish goes on to show from studies that, that this feeling of isolation or rejection is a more powerful predictor of health and long life than smoking, alcohol use, inactivity, look on the slide, overeating, or all other practices combined. In other words... We may be really good about avoiding you know, those risk factors that society recognizes as damaging, the smoking, the alcohol use, whatever it might be. We could be good at following all those, but if we're not addressing the attitude of the heart, we're at, we're at serious risk. Okay, women who, who just felt isolated uh, you know, in one study, had a much higher risk dying of cancer. All kinds of studies showing this. So pain, dysfunction, and guilt, 
uh, uh, builds in our lives due to deficiencies. Remember, there's all kinds of deficiencies, and that's not just mineral and essential oil deficiencies. It's not just vitamin deficiencies. It's not just deficiencies of fiber and, and colorful whole plant foods. We need to fill. We need to fill our hearts and our minds with the things that change our, our genetic expression most powerfully. And, and essentially, that means that we need to fill it with the opposite of hostility. What is the opposite of hostility? When hostility increases, forgiveness decreases. This is, this is, by the way, a scientific textbook. Okay? This is a physiologic study that's being referred to. When hostility increases, forgiveness decreases. When forgiveness increases, hostility and angers automatically decrease. So the, the, the overwhelming evidence in the scientific and medical literature is that the answer to the number one risk factor that affects our health is learning to be good at forgiveness. Finding excuses to forgive people. But see, it's, it's, it's very difficult because we can't give what we don't have. If you don't feel like you have forgiveness, it's very difficult to give that to somebody else. The, um, you know, there's, there's so many you know, conflicts in our lives, uh, um, but there's always going to be conflict. The question is how we deal with that. Are we eager to quickly resolve the conflicts in our lives? Um, so conflict basically is natural disagreements that we all have from time to time that, you know, uh, be- between individuals or groups of different attitudes, beliefs, values, or needs. It was Henry Ford who said, the secret to success is to understand the point of view of others. That can be a challenge. But if we're willing to be open-minded, kind of look at life from somebody else's perspective, immediately we're investing ourselves in them. We begin to like them even though previously we didn't like them at all. We even hated being around them. The principle of investment. I recently read an autobiography, or a biography rather, of HMS Richards Sr. It's one of the most amazing preachers of, of years ago. And he had gone through some experiences dealing with in religious institutions that made him extremely bitter. A, a, a top administrator in his church had actually uh, said some things and created policies that caused his mother, who was uh, a, a very gifted administrator, to lose her job. And, and this young man, HMS Richards Sr., as he was going through college, remembered how seethingly upset he was at this church administrator who had caused his mother to lose her job. It had been so unfair. Years later, HMS Richards Sr. realized that this had been part of his zone of rumination. 
where even though he oftentimes preached on the value of forgiveness, that he had never himself taken the opportunity to forgive this man. You know what he did? He actually had some of his colleagues find out where he was living now, this man who had caused the loss of his mother's job. He was staying in a retirement home. Nobody came to visit him ever. He was in his last year of his life, miserable. And HMS Richards Sr. went to him and to his bedside. He was sitting, actually he was in an auditorium or a, 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 a gathering place all by himself. Nobody was talking to him. And he went up to him and introduced himself. And the older gentleman acknowledged that he remembered him and his parents. And, and Richards went on to explain how upset he had been and how, how bitter he had been about what had happened. And this older gentleman acknowledged that he understood. He understood why somebody could be so upset. But HMS Richards said to this older man, says, I want you to know that I forgive you because I want to completely wipe the slate clean. I don't want to have any resentment in my life towards anybody. And that act of forgiveness and that acceptance on the part of this older gentleman ended up causing them to be fast friends. And for that last year of this man's life, Mr. Richards was one of the few people that regularly came and visited him giving this older man a sense of joy and a new understanding of what it means to be forgiven. Uh, so we have an opportunity to change the lives of others who may have done us wrong. But by doing so, we dramatically change our own. So it's not, we're not responsible for how others respond to our desire to bring resolution to conflict. We can't control that. All we can do is act on a desire to bring resolution and do our best at that. So, doc, uh, so HMS Richards Sr., he frequently said, says, you never, you'll never do any great work without having to fight against the arguments of good men. In any organization, you're always going to be well, there's, there are going to be times when you confront people that are good people, but they just have a different perspective in life than you do. They have different goals, different ideas that will conflict with yours. How do we deal with that? How we deal with that determines our current and our future health. So this is really a critical, critical concept. So as Seneca pointed out, it is part of the cure to wish to be cured. Do I want to? Do I want to get healthier? Am I willing to humble myself and to go to people to resolve these seemingly unresolvable challenges? It's, um, it was the Apostle Paul who said, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world when it comes to forgiveness? Forget about it, right? Some of the most popular TV shows are all about vengeance, getting even, right? Okay, it's destroying the fabric of our society 
our families, and our personal health. So don't conform any longer to that pattern of this world that seeks to follow unforgiveness, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, a willingness, an understanding of the spiritual, emotional, and physiological impact of this concept of forgiveness. Uh, One of my favorite prophecies, if you will, by Isaiah, he said, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. It's actually a prophecy about the, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the Jew, Jewish exile. But actually, it's far more than that. This is actually, in my opinion, a promise that we, each of us, you and I, have the opportunity to be a repair of the breach, the gaps. See, with blood testing, with laboratory testing, we can figure out what the gaps are. We can figure out where our weaknesses are. And then we have choices of how to fill in those gaps, to restore the past to dwell in, restore the metabolic and the genetic pathways that influence our health. And it all comes from being willing to humble ourselves to do what's right. Um, So, this is how I define forgiveness. It is the only prescription, the only elixir, the only only medicine in the entire universe, the only potion that is powerful enough to unlock the chemical bonds of hostility, resentment, and bitterness. You've got you to understand this. Forgiveness is the only way that you can physiologically unlock the chemical bonds of hostility, resentment, and bitterness that have locked up your genes in preventing healing. So let's get back to the story of Nancy as we finish up today. So Nancy's looking at me and saying, what am I going to do? It's been 20 years I haven't spoken to my, to my neighbor in 20 years. I can't, I can't just go up to her and say, oh, I'm sorry. Really? It might be just that easy, Nancy. So I, just, I just, you know, you can imagine the conflict in her, in her heart. And she's, she said, I'm just going to feel like such a fool. And that's just it. If we want to be healthy, we have to be willing to feel like a fool. I'm serious, because that's exactly what we're going to feel like, at least for a while. Because right? we just, you know, so many things can go wrong. What if, they, what if they laugh at us? What if they hang up the phone? What if, what if they turn away and walk away? Well, what, what do I do if that happens? All you got to do is try it, Nancy. So I challenged her, what are you going to do in the next 24 hours? Prayed with her. She goes home. About 20 minutes later, she gets a knock at the door. It's her walking partner, another neighbor lady, who, 
who had helped her with her wellness program. Because anybody that's on a, a good wellness program knows that you need to have somebody to help you be accountable, right? So, so she had immediately, at the beginning of her six-month program, found a, another neighbor lady that she could go on walks several times a day with. And so she quickly got her shoes on. She wasn't planning on walking because she was so distressed. But you know, when your walking partner shows up, you end up doing things that you wouldn't do just for yourself, right? That's the beauty of having a walking partner or an exercise partner. And, and so she couldn't help but just unburdening her heart to her walking partner who just listened, didn't say anything. She just listened. And at the end of the walk, Nancy says, thank you so much for just listening. I just, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Went home, had a restless night. How am I gonna how am I gonna bring this up to my past very best friend? Next morning she has a knock on the door. She goes to the door, there's her walking partner, but right behind her is her past very best friend. Looking at her for the first time in twenty years. Nancy becomes overwhelmed with emotion and she takes those three steps down. To the, to, to the driveway, and as she starts walking towards her past friend, her past friend takes two steps towards her, and they just embrace. And Nancy says, I'm so sorry for being so foolish, for being unwilling to ask for forgiveness. What did her friend say? She said, no, Nancy, I'm sorry. I should have asked for forgiveness. And they embraced and they cried together. And then they went for a walk together. And now they're very best friends again. 20 years, not just wasted, but 20 years of horrible stress because of an unwillingness to recognize that horrible physiological risk factor of unforgiveness. We have an opportunity tonight to take advantage of this new awareness, this new self-awareness. And so my challenge to you is to decide, decide tonight, what are you going to do in the next 24 hours to resolve some issue in your past that has been left unresolved, that has been now part of that zone of rumination? What can you do to limit risk in your life today? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Youngberg, for that powerful presentation. Uh, we invite those here on site at the Fallbrook Seventh Avenue Church. If you have a question for Dr. Youngberg, to come forward over here to this blue uh, taped line, and uh, you can line up and ask questions. And, and in the meantime, we have a few questions from some of our on 
line viewers, Dr. Youngberg will start out with a question from Jackie. She says, your dietary recommendations are clearly plant-based. With the current paleo craze, I've been reading more and more about the importance of good quality meats, including organ meats. There seems to be a lot of documentation and studies cited in the work of Sally Fallon from Nourishing Traditions, as well as the Weston Price Foundation. What do you think of their perspective? Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of, um, lot of people kind of jumping on the bandwagon of paleo. And as, as I've said before in this series, I would rather have somebody follow a paleo diet than to be on a junk food vegetarian diet. No question. Assuming one very important factor, and that is that the flesh foods consumed can be certified as disease-free. And that's the catch. That's really the catch. Now, there's many things that an organic farmer can do to minimize the risk of disease spreading in, uh, in the animals that they raise. Absolutely. There's all, stop feeding them you know, uh, uh, foods laced with pesticides, Stop feeding the chickens arsenic that's literally put in there to cause them to grow faster. Arsenic, that neurotoxin. Stop giving them all the things that, you know, the, the, the antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera, that, that cause changes to their flesh and therefore increases the risk of disease in those who consume their flesh. I guess... I guess the real question is, is how, how can we certify that we're avoiding cancer and infectious organisms? I personally think that cancer and infections, that's why, by the way, that non-organic meats are, are, you know, or animals that are raised for slaughter are just pumps full of antibiotics, because there's a problem with infections. A part of it is because how they're raised, you know, they're in confined spaces and so forth. Clearly an animal raised outdoors in fresh air, eating food that was designed to be consumed by those animals rather than, you know, ground up other animal parts. Um, but, but infectious organisms and cancer are still a major problem today. And, and, I, and I believe all flesh foods. So that's why I choose not to go paleo. Uh, however, uh, like I said, I'd rather work with somebody who's interested in their health, who follows a paleo tradition where they're eliminating all those unhealthy refined foods and junk foods, consuming lots of plant-based foods, because they do, uh, and, uh, and then using moderate amounts of organic meats. Obviously, that's far better than eating the regular meats. Um, so that each person has to decide for themselves what makes the most sense to them. I personally feel that the very best diet for most people is going to be a diet that's primarily plant-based uh, and that limits exposure to animal products uh, because primarily of the level of disease in the world today and toxicities in the world today. Even those of us who eat healthy and are exposed to fresh air, we still are exposed to lots of toxins because it's everywhere. It's in the air. It's in the ocean. 
And so I want to minimize my exposure to that. Excellent. Thank you. And also for our online viewers, we uh, encourage you that if you have any questions, that you can email dryoungberginfo at gmail.com. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, That's right. here's, here's a, a, a couple of questions from Tacey. We're not going to read all of them, um, but one in particular. Um, she says, I believe it would be prudent to test her children for the MTHFR. And is it possible to get lab orders uh, from you on this and assessment uh, of the results. How would someone go about doing that? Okay, well, uh, the, the MTHFR is the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase gene mutation test. And um, I think it's a valuable test for everybody to do. I think the, e the easiest way to have that done is to just go to one of the gene assessment tests that are available. I personally like the 23andMe. Uh, it's a saliva kit that you just, you just go online to 23andMe.com, order it for $99, provide a saliva sample, register that, that kit, and then mail it back to them. And in about two to three weeks, you get, you get a, a data file from 23andMe that can then be used by other sources to develop a printout about your genetic mutations. Sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? But the reality is that we're all mutants, and our goal is to find out where we have the mutations. I think it's a very valuable test, because when we find where our mutation is, then we actually can learn how to biochemically bypass that mutation with the proper nutrition. Isn't that exciting? You can actually bypass a gene mutation many times by giving it the right nutrition so that that metabolic pathway influenced by that gene is now working much more fluidly, therefore lowering your risk. So yeah, I think everybody should have that uh, just to be aware. A lot of people are negative on that mutation, and if we're positive, especially with the double copies of the mutation, then there are specific things that we can do. In fact, on the dryoungberg.com website, there's a specific, under the lab section, there's a specific discussion about how to deal with, with that mutation, the nutritional protocol-wise. Yeah, excellent. And we want to encourage Tacey for some of these other questions to uh, perhaps uh, go to your website and contact you uh, for those. Another question, um, you mentioned a number of solutions to those that struggle with uh, hostility um, you know, diet, forgiveness, etc. Um, someone who is struggling with stress or just stressed out. I mean, we're all busy. You know, we all have a million things going on. How do we deal with stress in our life? Okay. Well, take a deep breath. <laughs> you know, we, we all uh, have various types and levels of stress. And I, I think that the first step is to be conscious of the 24-hour day, and carve out. If you're familiar with this principle of carve-outs, you carve out a certain amount of time every day that is designed to help you get sanity back into your life. Because if you're constantly focusing on your work objectives or even your family objectives or school objectives, whatever it might be, what happens is that you get left out and sanity gets left out 
and uh, there's no more borders in your life. There's no more margins in your life. So you have to develop borders. You have to develop margins. And I would actually go to the, the section in the dryoungberg.com website that talks about how to set limits. We did that early on in our program, session one and two and three. How do we set limits in our lives? To be effective in any aspect of our lives, we have to know, be good at setting limits. If we don't set limits when it comes to our health and our 24-hour day, we're not going to be healthy. So that would be the first, the first step is to be true to that and, and follow our plan. Don't follow our thirst. Don't follow what we feel like doing. We follow our plan. And if we can do that, we'll be successful. Wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's actually all of our questions uh, from our online uh, viewers. Yeah. And uh, perhaps there's some here, but uh, thank you, Dr. Youngberg, right. so much. Thank you, and good night.